Lord God, open our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus to what you would say to us this day. Amen. Follow the Lamb. Now, one might ask, why should we preach? Why should we study this exotic book, the book of Revelation? How do we receive strength and hope from this, the last book of the Bible? There's some indication that the early believers who this letter was written to, this prophecy was written to, were undergoing persecution. And as I indicated in my sermon last Sunday, there are many people around the world in other nations who are experiencing persecution and who are being martyred as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. In his book, Subversive Spirituality, Eugene Peterson, who is also the author of the message, suggested that Revelation is, quote, the definitive biblical book for our time and that it is capable of providing a comprehensive text for the church's life today. So many times this book is seen as a type of roadmap, is seen as a kind of prediction to say what will happen, to foretell what will happen for future events for this nation and or other nations. But John is very specific as he starts this this book, saying that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is centered, it is Jesus centered for the book of Revelation to give strength and hope for the believers in John's day and also for our day, especially especially as we face the reality of evil. And once again, as a nation, we become aware as the news unfolded from Orlando this week, and I just first heard about it before I left the, the building here last week, that this was on the news. The, the events in Orlando telling us that, yes, evil is very much a presence in our lives and in our nation. Lauren Johns, a professor of New Testament at at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, lists a number of reasons, and I'll just uh, put these, uh, these will be on the PowerPoint, a number of reasons why this book is valuable for our day. First, It resists powerfully the trivialization of the gospel. It unmasks the idolatrous powers in the government and society generally. C, it maintains a vision of God's sovereignty in the midst of the competing versions of reality. It reflects a robust theology of evil. It lifts up the cross of Christ as the center of the revelation and the key to the unfolding of history. And it encourages an ethic of nonviolent resistance to evil, including the idolatry of civil religion. End quote. Later, then, John writes in the same book that 
Revelation is not primarily about the mechanics of the end. It is primarily about how God deals with evil and redeems the world and about how this vision empowers believers to live faithfully in the midst of Babylon, end quote. And so as we come to this passage, as we come to, to Revelation chapter 13, John continues to be on his island prison, the island of Patmos, as you recall. And he sees a beast arising out of the sea. And this beast, rather, rather hideous-looking beast, has seven heads, seven heads and ten horns. And this is one of the, what one artist thinks the beast looks like. And I, you can count the heads there, seven heads, this beast out of the sea. And a total of ten horns. This is the Antichrist. And while the book of Revelation does not use this term, we can think of this beast from the sea as the, the Antichrist. Because this beast, this beast has all the characteristics the opposite of Christ. So we could refer to, as Paul does in his letter to the Thessalonians, as the, the Antichrist. And you can, um, if you care to, you can fill this in on, your, on the message notes in your bulletin, this being the first one. So this beast from the sea received its authority, received its power from the beast or from the dragon that we looked at last Sunday, the, the red dragon that John records in the previous chapter. And the people on the earth, the people on the earth worshipped the dragon. They worshipped the beast from the sea or the Antichrist. And they said, as they worshipped, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Implying that they are powerless to fight against this, these forces. Now, most scholars agree that the first beast, this first beast in this chapter, refers to the Roman Empire. Ted Grimsrud says, quote, The sea beast uttered blasphemies against God, called all people to worship it, made war against God pe God's people. Authority was given to it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And he, Ted says, all these things were true of Rome. It called itself supreme and required total allegiance from its people. It had control over almost the whole known world and was persecuting the church during the latter half of the first century. So that is a discussion of the first beast that John sees from this passage in chapter 13, the first part. Let's focus then on more detail in verse, verses 13, um, chapter 13, verses 11 to 18, reading these. 
Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. And because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the, of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could buy or sell, they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And then he writes, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, that number is 666. So this is John sees another beast. This beast, rather than arising from the sea, John sees this beast arising out of the earth. And the beast, and this is, uh, we'll have the picture now of the beast out of the earth that John, that John sees. And the beast in this section is identified later as the false prophet. So we have this introduction, the introduction to what one might call a trinity of evil. The red dragon that we saw in chapter 12, referring to the red dragon, referred to the devil. And now the beast from the, from the sea is a caricature of Jesus or we might say the, the parody of Jesus or a caricature of Jesus. We might say the Antichrist, which I had indicated earlier. And then lastly, the beast from the earth is a caricature or a parody of the Holy Spirit, who even is able to cause fire to come down from heaven, similar to what happened at Pentecost. So we have these three, these three, the, including the last one, which referred to the false prophet, from the earth, indicating the trinity of evil. The second beast is a symbol of the emperor worship, a false religion that worships the state, a false religion that worships the nation and the leaders of the state instead of worshiping God. Christopher Rowland says, quote, emperor worship had become part of the fabric of life. And John's vision, in effect, demands of readers that they unravel that fabric and weave a new fabric of living, end of quote. So this beast that arose out of the earth gets his authority from the first beast that came out of the sea. The beast out of the earth 
the false prophet gets his authority, gets his power from the first beast, the Antichrist. As I indicated, the second beast from the earth, symbolizing in an evil response to the Holy Spirit, is able to cause fire to come down out of heaven. So here is a false and a demonic counterpart to the Holy Spirit. And this beast gave the number 666, the mark of the beast, to its subjects, which is a parallel to the seal of God that we have earlier in the book of Revelation. The number 666, indicating imperfection. Seven is the perfect number. The number 666, indicating three evils or the the primacy of evil that we have here in the book of Revelation. And this seal was given to those, to its subjects. But back in chapter 7, in verses 2 and 3, we have the sealing of God's people. Revelation 7, 2 and 3 where John says, I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea. Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. So here, The servants of God also receive a seal. The forehead and the hand symbolize power and allegiance that is given over to another in worship. And I would suggest that rather than many scholars have down through the ages have tried to figure out what particular person or what particular leader leader the 666 refers to. But I would suggest that rather than trying to find a particular person that this refers to, I would suggest it is any demonic oppressive system uh, that is not in tune with God, rather than an individual person. And in contrast to the number 666, which is needed to buy and sell, and to get ahead in the economic system. The followers of Jesus, the 144,000 that are designated here, have their allegiance given to Jesus Christ. They have their allegiance to the Lord Jesus. In Revelation chapter 14, which we'll look at in a couple minutes, John sees... I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So these 144,000, God's children, had God's name on their foreheads, God's seal upon them. Even to this day, some Jews place the Shema, the words of scripture, inside little boxes and that are then placed on their hands and on their foreheads 
to remember the words of Scripture. Nelson Crable suggests, quote, Worship should govern every thought and action as completely as if God's name were bound to our hands and affixed to our foreheads. Again, emphasizing the trinity of evil and the parody of Christianity, Ted Grimsrud says, chapter 13 gives us a parody of Christianity, a trinity, the dragon, beast, and false prophet, a death and resurrection, and a universal church with its sacrament of membership that we see in 1316. Let's continue then to go into chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. And then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So John has a vision there as he is on the island of Patmos, and he sees 144,000 symbolic of the total of those who are the redeemed, the total of those who are following the disciples of Jesus Christ. Number 12 is the symbol for Mount Zion, and 144 is 12 squared, so it indicates the, the perfection, the importance of Mount Zion, which was where Jerusalem is. So John sees the heavenly Mount Zion, and he sees a lamb on Mount Zion. And this is in contrast to Mount Sinai, where the law was given. The heavenly Mount Zion is a place of the lamb, a place of the Son of God. And the group of saints a type of first fruits are standing there singing and giving praise and adoration to God. And John expresses, John expresses their complete devotion to Jesus, their complete devotion to God in terms of sexual fidelity, sexual purity. And in the Old Testament, when the people of God had gone astray, the prophets referred to their idolatry in terms of infidelity. And that's probably what John is referring to here. Bernard Eller, in his book, comments on this verse, and he says, quote, 
likely John means to say nothing more than that these people have been completely loyal to Christ and have not gone chasing after other gods and God's substitutes, end of quote. They were completely, completely pure and completely desirous of the, of the Lord and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the saints in heaven were singing, and they were the ones following the Lamb wherever he goes. And of course, the way of the Lamb is suffering and death. The way of the Lamb is not our own way. The way of the Lamb is not defending ourselves, but being willing to be a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. We are instructed to not seek revenge and to not compromise with evil. Peter, the outspoken leader of the apostles, one of the, Peter happens to be one of my favorite characters in the, in the New Testament, but he was outspoken and he continued to, to make mistakes and get his foot in his mouth. But Peter, you recall, at the time of the crucifixion or the events leading up to the crucifixion, was so sure, and he tells Jesus, I will never forsake you. But he had something to learn about nonviolence and about this way of Jesus. And while Jesus was with, or while Peter was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes the sword and he tries to defend Jesus and himself. And then Jesus said, in Matthew 26, 52, words similar to what we have here in the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. And after that attempt at revenge, Peter then tries compromise, and he slinks away and hides. And he was later restored into the kingdom by Jesus. And Jesus says that he will be a leader. And he builds his church upon the, the, uh, the uh, confession of Peter. And perhaps, perhaps, I can imagine that Peter was probably thinking about these things. And about how the Lord restored him. And about his, his passion and his zealousness for, for Jesus and his kingdom. As Peter then writes these words to the early believers, where Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. John Yates says, quote, Revelation teaches that the proper response to persecution is neither retaliation nor compromise, but faithful endurance, which turns violence into victory. End of quote. So, what does, this all, what does all this have to do with our day? How do we apply this to this congregation, in this community, and in our nation at this time? 
Number one, the first takeaway is we need to be careful that we are not seduced by our nation and that we do not worship and throw our ultimate allegiance to our nation state and the political system. We do not want to be seduced into think into giving our allegiance to this earthly kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. Paul writes to the Philippians of Philippians 3:20. Paul says, "But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." So I think these words to us and these cautions from the book of Revelation are especially apropos to our time in this particular season with the election season. And the writer of Hebrews provides a long litany, a rather lengthy litany of those who were heroes of the faith. And then in the middle of that litany, he says in Hebrews 11, All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Their homeland, the believer's homeland, is in heaven. We are citizens, ultimately citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. John Yates comments on the beast from the earth, and he says, The spirit of the beast is present when any state demands complete allegiance, whether that state be communist, Nazi, or capitalist. The spirit of the beast from the earth is present in any church that advocates obedient allegiance to such a government, whether that church be the Orthodox Church of Russia, the state church of Nazi Germany, or ultra-patriotic fundamentalism in the United States, end quote. So I would remind all of us, I would remind us as sisters and brothers that our primary allegiance, that our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God and not to the nation state. Ben Gosen is a Mennonite PhD student studying at Harvard University and I had the opportunity, the Mennonite uh, Historical Society had brought him in to give a lecture to in this area and had the opportunity to hear him speak. And he's doing research about the Mennonites in Germany during the time of the Nazis leading up to the Second World War. And he has done significant research and will be publishing a book in February of next year. And most German Mennonites, he's discovered, Many German Mennonites were supportive of delving into their, into their background. Mennonites, like many of them, like genealogy and, and uh, trying to discover who they're related to. And they, they were doing this. The Nazis encouraged them to do this and so that they 
could discover that they were completely Aryan, that they had no Jewish blood in them, and therefore were a superior race. And when properly documented, they gave this information to the Nazi officials, and the German Mennonites then received significant economic and social advantages because they could document they had no Jewish blood. In that context, I think William Barclay's comment is apropos. He says, when a church compromises with the world, it becomes the world and ceases to be a church and Christ is betrayed again, end quote. The 144,000, in contrast, are completely yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're completely sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. They would give their ultimate allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Speaking about human government, Wilcox says, the saints will not take up the sword or overthrow it, to overthrow it, but neither will they worship at its shrine and be swayed by its talk of patriotism and give it the clerical blessing it so much desires. They reserve the right to criticize and to discern continually between the state functioning properly under divine authority and the state acting illegitimately as, as divine authority, end of quote. Down through the years in our Mennonite churches and Baptist churches, we have emphasized Romans 13, where we are told, instructed, Paul instructs us, that the governments are ordained by God. And we are instructed in Scripture to pray for our leaders, to pray for our, our governing officials, those who have the rule over us. But this passage, but Revelation 13, stresses that governments that demand ultimate allegiance from its citizens are demonic. And Roland reminds us that the reality of the demands of evil can be subtle. He writes, John's vision is a pointed reminder of the ease with which the powers of evil can seduce us. Despite the widespread assumption that it was evil men like Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot, and their supporters who were responsible for crimes against humanity, they would not have been able to commit atrocities without the tacit support of ordinary people including many Christians, he says, who kept their noses clean, maintained a low profile, and avoided at all costs being seen as political. End quote. Let us not be seduced. The second takeaway. Like the saints in heaven, we are called to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This is a way of presenting, of understanding discipleship, following the way of Jesus as Jesus lived on this earth. It's giving up, being willing to give up our earthly life, even as Jesus was willing to give up his earthly life. Being willing to be living as holy, righteous persons, to witness and to give witness to the power of the Lamb, to others 
and to invite others to follow in that life of discipleship. John is not saying, I would suggest, that they follow Jesus as Jesus strolls around heaven. Instead, these persons are following Jesus, the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. Jesus said in Mark 8:34, he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, "If any want to be my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me." Let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This is the last quote that I have for you this morning. Brian Zand. Jesus doesn't call us to make Israel, Egypt, Babylon, Rome, America, or any other empire great again. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to lose our lives, to take up our cross and follow him. End quote. The 144,000 follow the way of Jesus. Not a king with military might and power. They follow the lamb. He sees a lamb who was on Mount Zion, the lamb who was crucified. They did not cling to their own rights. They did not cling to their own lives. They were willing to give up their lives to follow this lamb who is on Mount Zion. What a demonstration to us for a way to live. May, my sisters and brothers, may it be so in our lives as we learn to live and love like Jesus. Amen.